I uh, took the Facebook app off my phone, so I haven't been as plugged in as I have been in the past, which is probably a good thing, but uh, I was on, on my computer today, and just, just seeing some of the posts from people that I know out in the community, um, explicatives and things like that about 2016 being gone, and in the review mirror, and how, how thankful many are. Um, just recognizing that 2016 has been a tough year uh, for a lot of people, and I don't know, from a world perspective, every year you could say has been a tough year. Every year somebody's lost someone. Um, there's a war always going on since, I don't know, I, I don't know of a time when there hasn't been. Um, but I, I would say for, for America, it's been a particularly tough year, uh, just domestically. It seemed like many weeks out of the 52 this past year, we're hearing something on the news about uh, police brutality or, or brutality against police, uh, uh, against um, uh, we're hearing headlines about racism, about growing economic tension. We're hearing about increased um, divides of regions in our country, and I, and I suspect it's not so much a new thing as they're as they're coming to light more uh, blatantly with uh, with with the political landscape and this year's election cycle, and just how divisive it has been uh, across the nation. And that's not even to mention things like ISIS and Syrian refugees and the South China Sea debacle that's going, what is going on? And uh, the new oppressive leadership in the Philippines. I mean, just to mention a few, uh, we've, with all of these new things, we've forgotten about North Korea and all these other crazy places that are still going crazy. Um, and it's tempting, I would say, in that kind of face, uh, and this is some of the rhetoric I've seen on Facebook posts, is just to throw our hands up and say, 2017 could not have gotten here fast enough. Like, woo! Good riddance 2016, which the problem with that is I think at best that's wishful thinking, and I think more accurately it's some form of repression on our part and the lingering sinews of a long ago severed hope of human progress. Yes, I wrote that out. <laughs> it sounded, sounded really good. Um, you know, there was this, I've been reading a lot of um, 19th century poetry, actually, and this idea of back then that, that progress, because of science and technology, things are just going to get better, and people begin to read the Bible through that lens, and how, you know what, with Jesus, we're just going to become better people, and we're going to fix all the world's problems. And most historians point to one event that shattered that idea of human progress, and that one event is World War I. That's the, the tipping point, the war to end all wars. When we realized that all of this technology, uh, we just turned it in on ourselves. And all of the technological advancements, science, all that stuff, does nothing for us if our hearts of our character as people hasn't changed, right? Can we really expect then the flip of the calendar, the writing of a new date, um, the marching on of time to erase what just happened yesterday or the year before. Um, not if we're sane and rational. We can't really think that. We can't really think like, yay, 2017, it's all going to be different. So what do we do then? What are our choices? Um, do we just say, well, just cope with it. Um, muster up optimism. Uh, say, oh, look what the world has come to. And get in our little groups and say that over and over again and Actually saying, look what the world has come to, is an objective and sane response. It's not very hopeful, but it's true if nothing changes, if our limited perspective is all that we have. 
But that has never been the response of the mainstream Christian church. From the very beginning of the Jesus movement, as soon as Jesus rose from the dead and ascended and sent his spirit to dwell in us, the Christian response has not been, look what the world has come to. The Christian response has always been, look who has come into the world. It is the who our church is built upon, not the rock band, although they have a great bass player. It is the who we put our trust in. It is the good news of the arrival of the who who has come into the world that we preach. And it is the good news of the whom that Mark will present to us in the beginning of his gospel. Would you stand with me as we read what Mark has to say in his first chapter, verses 1 through 15. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I wonder what Mark thinks about Jesus. Wow. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, and he was saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. Repent and believe in this good news. Lord, you have given us this verse not only in the Gospel of Mark, but as a church. You have formed this church, this plant of a church, on these words of Jesus, this proclamation of the inbreaking kingdom of God, the reign of God. But woe to us if these words have become too familiar. So we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts and our minds to this familiar text and help us to see and understand it in a way that you want us to for this new year. Amen. You may be seated. I fully recognize that this is about the fifth time I've preached this text. The first sermon that I preached in this church uh, 
was this, this one. It's, it's our Zara verse, which is a Hebrew word for seed. It is what our church is founded on. And so some of this is going to be uh, repetitive. Don't. So now I'm telling you that, so it's up to you to listen with new ears, right? Uh, and there's also some, some new things tossed in. Mark begins his gospel, which means good news. And this good news is not about Jesus, necessarily. It is Jesus. Rather, Mark would say, Jesus is the good news. It's Jesus, who is the who, who's come into the world. And after making such a bold statement that Jesus is the Christ and is the Son of God, Mark quotes the prophet Isaiah, who wrote hundreds of years before Jesus uh, was even born. And um, he wrote at a time when the Israelites were in captivity in Babylon. There's something amiss here, and we've noticed this before, and that is in the quote that Mark says is from Isaiah, we actually would recognize, and if I was a first century Jewish man uh, in my early 40s, I would have already have that, uh, that, the prophet memorized. Um, you would notice that it's not all from Isaiah, that there's parts of the quote that are from the book of Malachi, which is really interesting. Um, did Mark make a mistake, perhaps? Uh, did he mix up his quotes or forget to cite his sources? Dig a little bit deeper about how people taught back in that day, and you would realize that Mark is using a tactic uh, known by teachers in his day to draw attention to a text by saying it a little bit differently, by creating a little dissonance, he causes people to wake up and say, wait a minute, why is he quoting this as Isaiah when it's Isaiah and Malachi? Why is this text being highlighted? Malachi tells us that God himself will come and bring deliverance if the people would return to him, and that God himself would come and bring judgment if the people of Israel did not turn to him. And he said that before God comes, he's going to send a messenger to prepare the way before him. This messenger would come in the spirit and the likeness, not necessarily physically, but in his power of speech, just like Elijah I mean, Elijah is a powerful prophet, one of the most famous prophets of of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so this one that hundreds of years after Elijah died, before God comes, Malachi is saying that someone is going to come before God comes in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way. He's going to get people ready. He's going to make sure that their hearts are ready to receive God. Now check this out. After this prophecy of God coming and Elijah leading the way, we're introduced to this John the baptizer. Mark makes it clear at the beginning of his book, the gospel, that the gospel or the good news is all about Jesus. So you would expect Mark then to talk about Jesus first. I find it very interesting that of the four gospel writers, only two of them actually tell us anything about Jesus' birth. Right? In Matthew, we get a genealogy. We get a little stuff about Joseph, how the angel came to Joseph. We get the Magi. That's the cool story from Matthew. And we get the flight to Egypt when Herod goes crazy and starts killing people. Okay? In Luke, we get, oh, look, we get Zechariah and Elizabeth. We get the Magnificat. We get Mary, the Annunciation. We get Simeon and Anna and shepherds and angel armies singing. We even get a little bit of a, a story about Jesus' youth when he goes to the temple. So in Luke and Matthew, we get a little bit of the upbringing. And John, John, oh, John's amazing. I love John. John was the first gospel we preached through as a church. So you can tell how I feel about John. 
We'll come back to it sometime. But anyway, John, you know, John gives us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we, we get this picture of Jesus being co-eternal, co-creator with God, and then, and the Word came and tabernacled among us. From the heights to the lows, and John is magnificent. They all tell the beginning of Jesus differently, but they all have one thing in common. At the very beginning of all four Gospels, we hear about John the Baptist. For some reason, for these four guys, John the Baptist is so important, he trumps everybody telling the story about the angels or everybody telling the story about the Magi. It's John the Baptist that seems to be so important. Why all this talk about John? Well, if we keep reading to verse 6 of uh, Mark's gospel, uh, we learn about John's clothes and his diet. Yay! Um, Have you ever wondered why that is? Like, do you really know what Jesus wore? I mean, he's like the star of the show. I don't know what he wore. I mean, I know he wore clothes because they stripped him off. I don't know what they look like. I know he ate fish after he was ascended, but I didn't, I mean, this is great detail. Like, John eats wild locusts and he dips them in honey. I mean, I don't know that much about what Jesus' diet was. Think, come to think of it, I don't really know much about Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Moses or what they wore or ate. Why is this so important that Mark is telling us out of his sparse tightly packed gospel. He's telling us what John wore and ate. That's weird, right? What if John is telling us these clues about John the Baptist? What if Mark is telling us about John the Baptist? Because what John wore and looked like reveals who Jesus is. Second Kings 1.8 tells us that the prophet Elijah was a hairy man with a leather girdle around his loins. Does that sound at all familiar? John the Baptist is described as wearing the same type of clothing as Elijah. Mark wants us then to associate John with Elijah. Why? Of course, you already know this. Because the prophet Malachi says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Because John is preparing people for the arrival of God himself, and that is exactly what John the Baptist thinks about Jesus. And how is John preparing people for this day of the Lord? Well, he's calling them to repentance and to baptism. John's baptism was symbolic of death to a whole way of life in order to live a different way. He's getting people ready uh, for Jesus, who would baptize them in the Holy Spirit. And enter Jesus now into the scene in the Gospel of Mark. He's introduced by getting baptized by John. Not because he has anything to repent of or be forgiven of, because he's making a statement. Scripture tells us that before he took on human flesh, Jesus was present in the creation of the world. The creation story in the Bible talks about the Spirit of God hovering over the waters in the heavens. Jesus... Being in the water in this baptism and the spirit descending, hovering over like a dove, would cause a first century Jew to think of creation. In fact, what's going on in Jesus' moment here is symbolic of new creation. Mark then tells us that Jesus was impelled out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit where he's tempted by Satan. In the biblical creation story, The first humans, Adam and Eve, are tempted in the garden wilderness to commit sin. Sin, of course, that we still feel the effects of today. And Adam enjoyed harmony with the wild animals before the fall. But afterward, there's a strain on that relationship between Adam and Eve and animals and creation. 
Here we read Jesus was with the wild animals in communion with them. The grammar here suggests that Jesus is enjoying a pre-fall harmony with wild things. Unlike Adam and Eve who gave in to temptation, Jesus goes out in the wilderness and resists temptation, in effect, representing all of humanity, doing what you cannot do, what I cannot do. It's as if the curse of the fall of humanity is beginning to be undone in these works of Jesus. And here is the central message of Jesus. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the good news of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and trust in the good news. Good news, gospel, in the Greek, euangelion. There are two major uh, sources for that word that are coming into play in this one text. The first is the Hebrew scriptures. Remember how Mark quoted Isaiah 40. Sophia read it earlier. In that text, God tells Isaiah to speak words of comfort to the people of Israel with euangelion, with good news. The good news that he is going to come and dwell among them, that he is going to come and be their king. In apocalyptic literature, that time when God would come and become king of his people in the person is called the day of the Lord. We hear this in Amos and Isaiah and Jeremiah, the day of the Lord. It's a time or an age that would come in history and change the course of history or fulfill the course of history. Just an aside, I mean, this is an important issue, by the way. The way you and I think about the future directly affects how we live in the present. I, I know we don't think about this stuff all the time. Maybe Ryan Wasserman does because he's a philosopher. But like most of us don't sit around thinking about, well, I'm going to change the way I think. But when you think about it, there are three major ways humans over history, I'm grossly generalizing, have thought about the future, which directly affects how we live in the present. The first is rooted in a pagan worldview, and at its core is the belief that history is, repeated to, is fated to repeat itself. It's kind of like a turntable, and it goes round and round and round and round. And while the characters change, the roles stay the same. So uh, anyone out there ever seen the Matrix trilogy, right? Um, some of you have seen this. Okay, in the, in the movie, it's a sci-fi movie. Uh, Neo is the protagonist, and he is kind of like the savior figure in the movie. And when he finally gets to like the head bad guy, the writer of the program of the human race or whatever, he realizes and he's told that he's not the first hero to come around. That Buddha was before, you know, Plato, Buddha, Christ, Muhammad, all of these people were filling that role, and then they died, and then history just keeps repeating itself. And basically, he's told it's futile. And in that worldview, things just keep coming back around and around and around. And so, the motivation to be a good person is altruism. It's not because you can actually change anything or because anything's ever going to get much better. It's just going to repeat itself over and over again. And so the motivation then is just to, I want to be a good person because I want to be a good person. I want to do what I can do in this time that I have on earth. Not very hopeful, but that's a worldview that's out there. You create your own meaning. The second way is uh, uh, people have viewed history or, or the future is classic deism, 
rooted in the 18th, 19th century, 17th century. Uh, in this view, God is like a grand clockmaker. Oh my gosh, I mean, people will go on and on about the intricacy of the universe and how God in his massive power and intellect created the heavens and the earth and he did it all and then he just wound it up and let it go. And he stands somewhere aloof, sometimes when he feels like it gets involved, but for the most part, he's up here and away, and everything else is just kind of winding down. It might take a billion years, but everything is going to atrophy and eventually die. The modern view of this uh, classic deism is, you know, in atheism is that there's no clockmaker, it's just Big Bang or some kind of random happenstance, and, but, but still, it's the same outcome. The future is that the sun will eventually consume itself, everything will go black and freeze and die. It might be a billion years, but it's going to happen that way. And so, yay for the future. There's not, there's not, a, lot of, so there's not a lot of motivation besides make what you will of this life that you have now because there's not anything afterwards. The biblical worldview, of course, is different. Judaism and Christianity view time as going somewhere, linear, pointed somewhere, creation, relation, fall, struggle, hope, and one day, the day of the Lord, the day when God would break into history personally and change its course. The day of the Lord is the good news for those who believe, and that's what Jesus is talking about here, that with the arrival of the kingdom of God, the day of the Lord is breaking in. So that's one way that the good news is understood biblically. The second way that the good news or euangelion was understood uh, to Jesus' original hearers was as a technical term of the Roman Empire. When Jesus was born, we've talked about this before, Caesar Augustus was in power and he called himself a son of a god and every time he had a birthday or conquered a new thing, uh, runners and heralds would come in and they would proclaim the euangelion. Hear the good news for Bellingham! Augustus Caesar has just conquered you. Get ready, he's coming to town. Whitewash the main street. Make sure the storefronts are in good repair. Make sure you're in your finest dress and you better be lining the streets cheering his name. Notice there's no like, decide if you want to accept his kingship. It's just, he's here and you'd better be happy about it or else you won't be happy about it. Okay, that's the euangelion. By the time Jesus is proclaiming the gospel, Augustus has already died, and Tiberius Caesar is the emperor of Rome. So you can kind of sense this powerful double meaning of gospel or euangelion in that context. Not only is Jesus saying that God's rule has come near, but that there is a new ruler in town. If he's saying the euangelion is here in his presence, he's saying there's an alternative to Tiberius Caesar. Them's his fighting words. The actual euangelion, or good news, Jesus proclaimed was that the time was fulfilled, the kingdom of God was at hand or had come near. The announcement then that the kingdom of God is here means that the fall um, uh, of the kingdom of Herod, it means the fall of the kingdom of Tiberius Caesar, it means the fall of the kingdom of, uh, of Great Britain or America or whatever big civilization you can think of, it means the fall of your personal kingdom and my personal kingdom subject to the king. And I think we need to be careful to hold these two meanings of euangelion or good news in their original context. When a new king is announced, it's not merely information. 
It's not merely like, hey, here's an option. Um, Why don't you weigh the pros and cons and see if you want Jesus to be your king? That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying it's a fact. I've got good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. It's easy to read this these words from Mark, Mark's introduction to Jesus' good news, and overlook a very important piece. Let me read it again for you. When John had been taken into custody, John, who came in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord, to get people ready for God himself to come, that John was arrested and beheaded by the ruling authorities of Israel the people of God. So there's a problem here. And what we're seeing is that, and what we're going to see is that the good news isn't necessarily good news for people who kill the bearers of the good news. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He, his reign is good and gracious and forgiving, but it is his reign nonetheless. That's what reign means. There's no other king. Jesus was saying that the world as you know it has changed. The kingdom of God is breaking in. In fact, God has come. Jesus came not just with an opinion, but with news. He came not only with words, but with deeds. And wherever Jesus talked and taught, there was the kingdom of God. And when people Uh, that he met uh, who were oppressed with demonic possession, he cast out demons with authority because where Jesus was, the kingdom was. And when Jesus faced injustice of corrupt leadership, he challenged it. And when he came across those who were physically ill or deformed or blind or less than whole, he healed them. And when he encountered those who were emotionally broken, those caught in the cycles of sin, he confronted them and he forgave them and he made them new. God's promise of salvation came crashing into our world in the person of Jesus. But Jesus in the flesh, as a guy, can't be everywhere at the same time. In order to bring his kingdom in full, he had to break the back of evil itself. And he had to take away the enemy's greatest weapon, which is death. And so, we all have sin, and the wage of that sin is death, and so Jesus came to do something about it. He gave himself in death for our sake. He went to the cross, took on those those consequences of, of our sin and the sin of the world, your sin and my sin, and then he rose from the grave three days later. And he he ascended and he now reigns at the right hand of the Father, and he sent his Holy Spirit on us, all who have repented and are baptized. And he dwells now in the church. We're just praying about this in our pre-service prayer, which I invite you all to join us every Sunday at 4.30. We pray before the service, but how, it's crazy that he chooses me and you to dwell in. He says that you, as we gather as the church, we're his temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Sometimes I feel like such a shabby vessel for the temple of God, and yet that's what he says, that the Spirit is in his church. He dwells in you and in me. And so you see, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's breaking in all around us. And that's the core 
of the good news. When someone says the gospel or the good news, don't be fooled into thinking it's just one thing. It's not just forgiveness. It's not just uh, uh, social justice. It's not just beauty. It's not just heaven. It's not, it's not just these things. It's all of these things. It's, it's God's reign coming to bear on my heart as a person and as our society as a church and as the world. The kingdom of God is at hand. Yes, 2016 was a tough year, but negative news stories and fake news stories and horrible narratives, they're not the only narratives that are out there. I've seen the kingdom of God breaking in in 2016, and I've seen the reign of God in so many of you. Just this year, this church, you guys, have invested tens of thousands of dollars into positive powerful, transformative ministries. I received a letter a couple weeks ago from Engedi Refuge Ministries who helps women who are in sexual slavery find a safe place. In fact, the house is, is hidden uh, up in North Whatcom County. It's not a public place where you can just go find. Um, these women are given uh, a safe, safety, first of all. Uh, they're given counseling, uh, job skills, uh, clothing, everything that they might need to rehabilitate them. No strings attached. It's a Christian organization, but there's no strings attached. And uh, this letter was saying uh, how many people that they rescued this year and how uh, a handful of these women have also just come uh, without solicitation to know Jesus as Savior. You have invested in that ministry. We did it back in May when we had the, the collective worship gathering together. And um, one of the women said, I never knew a man could be so loving. That's what attracted me to Jesus. All the men in my life have looked at me and wanted something or sized me up as an object, but when I hear these stories about Jesus, he's different. That's the kingdom of God breaking in through his church. Yesterday, I was finishing my thoughts uh, for this sermon at Elizabeth Station, just drinking coffee, and the snow was falling, and it was cold and crappy outside. I, I thought it was beautiful, but it was gray and cold. And I saw a neighbor I hadn't seen in a while, and her three-year-old son, and uh, I'd only seen him when he was a baby. And so she introduced me, said, uh, this is the pastor of the church that does the egg hunt every year. Oh, that's nice. And then she got a little bit quiet and said, I gotta tell you, it is so hard to go through these winters. She had just gone to San Diego and come back, and it was just so gray, and she said, so many of us look forward to that event. It's just such full of life and color. It's the first thing we look forward to to break out of winter every season. Now, it's a stupid egg hunt with plastic eggs, and you know what I'm saying? On the one hand, we could be cynical and say, this doesn't mean anything. This isn't church work, but it does mean something to the community because we, we pray over it and it's a representative of, uh, of a church that cares about a community. And my prayer is that, that that woman would also know the color and the beauty and the life and the vibrance of the Jesus who impels us to do these things. See what I'm saying? That's part of the kingdom breaking in around us. I've seen our children grow in the knowledge and grace of Jesus. Uh, the older kids and I went shopping at, at Thanksgiving time uh, for some families that needed some help, and they were so 
It's so awesome. I mean, I, I, I tried to teach him this little thing on poverty and what does it mean to be in poverty and trying to tell him, you know, uh, lead him to the place where, you know, we're, we're all impoverished because of our spirit. They already knew all this stuff I mean, because they have great teachers and they have great parents and this community is teaching them. They're, and the first thing they say at the end, can we do it again next year? You know, it's the kingdom breaking in and influencing people. I mean, do I need to go on? I mean, we've all sacrificed and supported. Everyone's had a hand in sending a team of 38 people to Panama. Uh, We're involved in uh, either financially or personally with the cold weather shelter, which is definitely going to be open this week uh, if it overflows from from the Lighthouse Mission. I haven't even mentioned all of the, the things you're doing as individuals, vocation as mission, and all of this stuff. It's a different year but it's the same good news. Jesus has come. His kingdom is breaking in all around us. He's invited us to participate, and we have hope that he will come again to make all things new. And for that, I am thankful, and I'm hopeful. And I want to transition now just to invite us into a time of of prayer. I think the first prayer that I want to pray is a prayer of repentance, because I hear this proclamation about the kingdom and the reign of Jesus, and I realize there's areas of my life that I have not submitted to Jesus. There's areas of your life that you're holding on to for whatever reason, you know what they are. And so I thought, you know what, let's, let's pray. Before we start praying for the world and our community and all this stuff, let's start with ourselves. And um, to facilitate this, I've just taken the prayer out of, uh, uh, of repentance from David out of Psalm 51 and turned it into a responsive prayer. Um, and so Joe's going to put it up there and uh, let's pray this together.